You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, sponsored by Soundring. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Today's show is brought to you by Texture. Declutter your coffee table and access all of your favorite magazines right on your phone or tablet. To get your all-access pass to the world's most popular magazine titles, please visit Texture.com slash Break It Down. Daddy, can you break it down? Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Yeah! Hey guys, welcome to the show. Super pumped today. This is really exciting for me. I love this episode. It's the, my most. It's the most. It's my favorite thing I've done to date, really. And it's because I got to uh, do some real learning on air here, people. There's something I I realized is since I have an audience, you guys, then there's people that are willing to talk to me that are smart and have opinions and know stuff and have experiences, and so I can use that to just explore stuff. So what I wanted to explore today is the uh, the notion of terrorism and radical Islam and Syria and refugees. And uh, as some of you guys know, I'm not a political guy at all, and uh, I don't know much about this stuff. I never thought about it even too much, really. And we were on the road a few weeks ago, and there was the bombings in terrorists in, in Paris, the attacks there, and then come to find out it was in a rock club, uh, in a small room, the same kind of place we play. We've been to France. We've been all over Europe, and it kind of hit home. And then come to find out even more, uh, Under Oath's European merch guy, Nick, was doing merch that night for Eagles of Death Metal. And uh, unfortunately, I don't know if you know this or not, but he was killed. He was uh, murdered by terrorists. So now I'm really thinking about this stuff. It, it really, I got to deal with it. I got to think about it all of a sudden. Something that I thought was maybe far off or political, now it's kind of real. And then, of course, I see everything on social media and what people are saying. And some of it seems so crazy. And some of it seems so mean. And some of it seems so fruity. I don't know how to cut through it. So I try to use my logic and, and brain and stuff, but I'm not, not coming up with any good answers. So here we go. I get to talk to people that do know stuff and do have opinions. And the first one is Jeffrey Atticott. He is a uh, terrorism law professor. He's a retired military guy, very accomplished, very knowledgeable. He appears on Fox News and stuff like that very often. Uh, he's an expert, has a book out, and he's at St. Mary's College in San Antonio, Texas. So I talked to him to get some background on what exactly is this situation, what is terrorism, what is going on in Syria. Then I talked to a guy next, a guy named Jason Stapleton, who is a pretty, really smart guy who has a show called the Jason Stapleton Program. He's a libertarian guy. He values liberty, and he has some really interesting thoughts um, on what our responsibilities are as a people as Americans and what is the government's responsibility. And then I talked to my buddy Science Mike and wanted to discuss 
fear and how humans respond and what's going on on the internet and why do we react these ways and, uh, that we do to stuff like this. And then I talked to Chris Dudley from Under Oath, who was good friends with and knew uh, the merch guy, Nick, who was killed by terrorists. And so that that one's really interesting, too. So that's the map of the of what I'm going to talk to today, and I hope it'll color your point of view. Uh, some of the stuff these guys say is really interesting. Some of it's brilliant, and uh, some of it sounds crazy to me, and I think it will to you. But like I said, I'm jazzed because I'm genuinely learning in real time, having conversations on the air. So to me, this is, a, this is tremendous. I hope you guys enjoy this format. I think I I could do it for a lot of different topics or subjects, really, that I think would be fun to explore uh, multiple points of view on. Now, I do would I do I'm asking you guys, please, at this point, if you haven't, leave me a review on iTunes. Just go there, uh, leave some stars, whatever you think is worth. Write a note that that helps me out. Um, please go to my website, and anytime you shop on Amazon, which is a great place to shop, if you click through the link from my website, have that bookmarked, then I will get some points on that. I'll get a couple of bucks for the whatever it is that you're buying or spending so thank you everybody for doing that thus far and seriously thank you so much the people that have decided to actually contribute money and pay for this podcast that is actually what i wish everybody would do but i'm totally cool if you don't but please go to my website click the contribute button and maybe pay a few bucks an episode so that i can do stuff like this i'd love to make more episodes explore more subjects and do more of this stuff and the more gravity that this show gets, the more time I will, for sure, clear out inevitably and spend on it. And I really am excited. This is my favorite thing that I do. I'm, I really enjoy it. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I do. Now, this episode is brought to you by Texture. Texture is one of my fine sponsors. I really appreciate having them on here. And so Texture is an app that gives you all access pass to the magazines that you love right on your phone or tablet. They've got hundreds of real magazines that you can just cherry pick the articles that you care about the most. And I really think Real journalism and great writing is a lost art in some of the junk that's on the internet these days. Remember what it used to be like to read a magazine? Let's get back to that. Here's the best part. Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash break it down. Even better, I'll tell you what, why don't you give Texture as a gift between, you know, between now and December 31st. Think about that. You get unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. This is a fantastic gift for you or a loved one. And I think it's really a good idea. So here, let's do an experiment. Picture this. You get it to your you give this to your dad. Your dad takes his phone or his tablet. I bet he uses that. You know what? I bet he takes it to the toilet when he does his business. Picture it. Your dad on the toilet reading ESPN magazine, road and track, field and stream, whatever he's into. And he's thinking of you every time that he opens the app, every single time, once a day. What a good gift that is. You get it for your mom. I'm sure she reads uh, Golf Digest or your sister. She likes Glamour or L or, you know, there's plenty of magazines and you like them too. So here's how you got to do. Go to texture.com slash break it down today. And with that, um, we'll get straight into the episode here. We're going to first, like I said, talk to Jeffrey Atticott. He, uh, What I was looking for him for, it was uh, some some background, some knowledge. So how does this work? What is, how do we get here historically? What is terrorism? What's going on in Syria? And uh, I, got that, I got that from him and more. So uh, check this out. Here we go. 
All right, so Professor Jeffrey Atticott here. I'm really glad to talk to you today because you seem to be an expert in something that I don't know too much about and very interested. You're a retired uh, U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. You are a professor at St. Mary's. You founded the Center for Terrorism Law, and you teach about the law of war and stuff like that down there at St. Mary's. You got a book. You show up on TV as an expert on stuff like that. But let's start. What? Tell me about the Center for Terrorism Law. What is that? Our, our Center for Terrorism Law, I founded it uh, about 13 years ago. I'm the director. I did 20 years in the military. I was a senior advisor to all the Green Berets. So now I, I, um, you know, I did it in the real world, so now I'm doing it in the academic world. Mm-hmm. And at the law school here in San Antonio, Texas, that's what we do. We look at all the legal issues and policy issues related to terrorism. And, um, and, of course, it's very critical in this discussion to define the terms. Yeah, exactly. Let's start there. Uh, what is the definition of terrorism? It sounds like it might be a, a little bit ambiguous. Exactly. There is no international definition of terrorism. Uh, the United Nations tried to do it a couple of times, but it's never taken off. Domestically, we do. The federal government has, in the United States Code, several definitions of terrorism. There's just no international one. But well, okay, what's the domestic one? Then? Yeah, basically, when you boil it down, it's it's you use violence intentionally to target civilians in order to cause a government or a non-government agency to do something or to refrain from doing something. So, it means you use violence uh, against civilians, and you have a. Um, a methodology behind that. So, in other words, terrorism is not random acts of violence. They're, they're, the person that engages with the tactic of terrorism, terrorism wants to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. So, when President Obama, for example, says the terrorists did it, it it's non-descriptive. What does that mean? Terrorism is a tactic. Um, you've got to understand who are the people that are using the tactic of terrorism, which is to kill civilians to cause fear. So terrorism would include uh, shooting up Planned Parenthood or Timothy McVeigh bombing the federal building of Oklahoma City. It, it could. My latest book is called uh, Radical Islam Why, and I spend the first couple of chapters talking about defining terrorism. And there are really four types of groups of people that use terrorism as a tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, you have common criminals. Usually, uh, these people are, are on some type of a, a, you know instability, mentally unstable uh, criminal types that want to kill people just for the kicks of it. They they do it as a lust pattern. Mm-hmm. Then you have right wing extremists. Right wing extremists are like the Timothy McVeighs. These people have a paranoia about big government. Now, all conservatives don't like big government, but these folks have a paranoia, and when they snap. And they use terrorism as a tactic. They target symbols of federal authority of some sort. Mm-hmm. And then you have the largest category, which is radical Islam. By far and away, if you look at the federal prosecution since 9-11, it's not right-wing extremists. It's not left-wing extremists. It's not even criminal nut jobs. It's radical Islam. And they have attempted to kill uh, in this country with plots that have been broken up. Well over 100 plots have been broken up. And, uh, and so when radical Islamists use terror, they target civilians. And that's why when you see an, an attack in a, in a, uh, uh, you know, at a, at a uh, marathon or at a concert or, you know, at large population centers, that's probably going to be radical Islam because that's what they target. They want to kill as many people as they possibly can. Okay, so there's been a hundred attempted terrorist plots by uh, radical Islam that have been broken up in the United States since 9-11. Yeah, and, and here in Texas, we've had many, many plots that have been broken up, but tragically, one of them got through, and that was Major Nadal Hassan, who was a United States Army officer. Uh, he became radicalized in Virginia, 
and uh, he's slaughtered 13 people here at Fort mm -hmm. Hood and wounded many more. Then you had the Boston Marathon attack. Those were two individuals motivated by radical Islam. But most of the plots we've broken up, the Lackawanna Six, the Fort Dix Six, uh, many, many plots across the country, we've had good uh, police work, coupled with the fact that many of the jihadists here are incompetent. They don't really have the operational security to pull off a big attack. Okay, so is it true that the most of the people that are a threat to us are actually people that are here? They're not people overseas that are coming here. The people that are already here and become uh, radicalized. Yeah, and that's the, that's a great distinction because what I call it, I call it Al Qaeda Central or ISIS Central. That is the groups that are over there, where it all comes from. When they carry off a terror attack, they're about eighty percent successful because they have the operational skills the intelligence, the, the background to pull these things off. 9-11 cost Al-Qaeda about a million dollars to execute. Uh, ISIS has billions of dollars, and they're plotting right now to launch a devastating attack here in this country, and they're much more likely to succeed because the people that are inspired by radical Islam, and there are mm -hmm. thousands of them here in this country, they're not that sophisticated. They don't have the military skills, the mm -hmm. operational skills, to really develop a plot and to execute the plot in a meaningful fashion. But, I mean, if they've got billions of dollars, it seems like they would have been able to accomplish a lot more. I mean, we have the Paris attacks, but it doesn't seem like they've, you know, pulled off a bunch of major stuff like they could. Well, they've, they've conducted a lot of attacks around the world, but unless they hit one in the West, it doesn't really make the headlines. Uh, in Pakistan, in India, in all over the place, in Bali, they've killed lots of people. That's why the Paris attacks caused such a commotion, because if that attack in Paris would have happened, let's say, in Somalia or somewhere else, nobody would care. Mm -hmm. And yet thousands or thousands of people have been killed by al-Qaeda in different attacks around the world. They did try a, an attack with some planes in 2006 to fly them from Europe to here, and that was broken up through some good police force. But al-Qaeda has been kind of on the run. They're under the ground, and it's hard to plan offensive attacks against the West when you're just trying to stay alive. Well, what is ISIS's goal, as you see it, as they're trying to affect uh, foreign governments or foreign policy, um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS? I mean, what, what are they wanting to do? ISIS is the new kid on the block. They've been only been around for a couple of years, so they've been phenomenal in their success. They're above the ground, so they're planning an attack against us right now, but it's gonna, these attacks take about a year and a half, two years to, to carry out. Uh, their goal is to kill you, kill me, kill everybody. They want to kill. It's like a, it's like an Austin Powers movie. They want to kill everybody and take over the world. I mean, now we say, well, you can't do that, but you've got to think like they think if you're going to defeat them, and they think that they can. They think that God will come back and uh, bless their their acts of terror with even greater successes in the battlefield. And so, you know, when I was in the military, if I was advising the ISIS, uh, you know, chiefs, I would say, look, fellas. Let's not attack these little civilian targets because you really make people upset and we can capture more territory if we're more low-key. But see, they don't care about being low-key. They are commanded by their reading of the Quran and the holy writings which tell them to do these things and therefore their higher commander is God himself. And so operationally, they are doing what they think God tells them to do. So, and you think that's all the way up, not that there's just some people at the top that are wielding this religious... Uh brainwashing to accomplish some power-mongering goals or something like that. You're saying all the way up through the ranks to the top, these people believe they're engaged in a holy uh, sanctioned thing they should be doing. Exactly. And, and you know, whatever you say about ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, all these other radical groups, you've got to admire them. 
because they will die for their cause. Not many people will die for what they believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, these folks want to die. They embrace death because they feel if they die in jihad, because Islam is a works religion. It, generally, if you're a Muslim, you have to follow a certain moral code and taboos and rituals. When you die, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Allah, and if you're good enough, you go to heaven. If not, you go to hell. But you can bypass that if you die in jihad, and therefore they're very enthusiastic about dying because if you die in jihad killing the infidel, you go directly to paradise and you get these virgins that accompany you for all eternity. Well, still, I'm unclear on what their intent or goal is. I mean, to, to kill 130 people in France, or even if they could kill a thousand in the U.S., that doesn't seem to make a dent into taking over the, the territory or stuff. No, what they're trying to spark is a major war mm-hmm. between the West and themselves. Uh, they would love to see nuclear weapons or large-scale uh, weaponry involved because they believe in their religious uh, apocalyptic vision that, the, that God will come back and conquer the world himself once things reach a very desperate level. Okay. That's why, for example, you don't want the Iranians to get nuclear weapons. You don't want ISIS to get nuclear weapons because they will use them because they believe that that will be the trigger for God to return. They have a second coming type of uh, ideology. Um, remember, uh, Islam came about 500 years after Christianity, and Muhammad borrowed a lot of these concepts from the Old Testament and from the New Testament about the end times. So these folks think that they're in the end times right now. They're well, in the end times. I mean, <laughs> If that's true, that's really terrifying because that means that they think they can kill 130 or even several thousand people. They know that there's going to be retaliation. You're saying they even want that to happen. Yeah. They, and and that they actually would like it if we came over and attacked them. It doesn't matter about their civilian casualties or even their own soldiers. Uh, no matter what we did to them, they, they wouldn't be worried about that anyway. They, they actually invite it. It's a win-win because if you kill them individually, they go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And if you use enough force that would trigger the coming of Allah, then they win a second time. So Yikes. that's how they think. And our problem with our president, he doesn't think like they think. Mm-hmm. He assumes that he can contain them and this stuff will all go away if we just kind of ignore it. It's not going away. Radical Islam is growing across the world by leaps and bounds. In fact, the jihadists in this country are coming out of their holes as never before. Why? Because they see that ISIS is successful. They're not like Al-Qaeda. ISIS doesn't hide under the ground. They got their black flag of radical Islam above the ground. They're saying, come and get us, Mm -hmm. come and get us, come and get us. And they're inspiring jihadists by the thousands and tens of thousands all over the world to join them. Well, so they want us to Come get them. I mean, what? So what? What our, if that's what our enemy wants us to do? What's our strategy? Should we? I mean, does that mean we should uh, uh, disengage or, or just you know leave them alone, protect our borders? Well, again, once we understand how they think, if you're asking me what would I do if I was the commander in chief, um, first of all, is it in our best national interest to respond to these people? In other words, are they a threat to us? And the answer is yes, they are a threat because they've told us we're going to come here and we want to have a headline that will say. Detroit gone, New York gone. If they can acquire a weapon of mass destruction and they'll get it, they've got the money to buy one, they're going to use it. They've already told us they're going to use it. So therefore, we have to do something about it. But we we cannot do what the Obama administration wants to do, what they're doing now. They're killing bees around the beehive. Mm -hmm. We need to crush the beehive. And then the jihadists around the world will say, well, I guess God wasn't on their side after all because we've crushed them. And nothing happened. So we need to deal them a devastating blow. We can do it. 
And then, of course, we would leave uh, because I'm not in for long, hot showers with the Middle East. Uh, we devastate them and then get out, and that'll solve the problem. And them is them who? Is who in this case? In I mean, this case. The, the whole Middle East? Oh, no, ISIS. We know they're, they're, mm-hmm. they have a capital city of Raqqa. We know geographically where they're at. We send in everything we have. We take about three months. We crush them, and then we leave. Okay, so they do have like a concerted place we could attack, a capital city. But there'd be massive collateral damage, Is that? but that's our only play in your view. Yeah, I'm, I mean, my answer to that is, is it legal? The law of war allows for collateral damage. Uh, war is not a, a Harvard term paper. You're going to have collateral damage. We do the best job of limiting civilian casualties of any military on the face of the earth, except for maybe the Israelis. But you got to do what you got to do. The military, when we use it, we must use it in a way that is overwhelming and devastating in effect. Mm-hmm. Well, doesn't that run the risk then? I mean, could it have the reverse effect and just radicalize a whole bunch of more Muslims and make it make the problem worse? Oh, well, you're asking me, what if they pop up again in a few years somewhere else? We go back and crush them again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like changing the oil on your car. There's always going to be another war. But I guarantee you what these people will respect is force, overwhelming force. We saw that in 2003 with the war against Saddam Hussein. When we crushed his military, the entire Middle East went quiet. The Iranians stopped their nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Gaddafi admitted that he killed those people over Lockerbie, Scotland, paid the families millions of dollars. The Syrians were shaking in their boots. So they appreciate the application of overwhelming force. So, like that's more traditional, or uh, I don't know, primitive, even like the, that that mentality of they actually respect strength of an image and force. Like that is the thing in their culture that they respond to. I mean, you're you're right. I mean, we didn't start this war. They started it with us on 9/11. Um, but when we're at war, you identify the enemy, identify their center of gravity, and totally obliterate them. That's how you win a war. And yet this administration seems to think, again, it's a Harvard term paper. We can just kind of do onesies and twosies, these, these supercilious rules of engagement. The Obama surge cost us a thousand casualties, dead and wounded, and it changed nothing. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely absurd. Well, again, pretty scary. I haven't heard anybody ever say this stuff with this authority that directly and in a credible uh, fashion. It's, it's, I'm kind of having a hard time with it because I guess my natural inclination and a lot of the circles I run in would seem to be more of a, I don't know, a, a, could we fight it with education or bettering people and their conditions? And is there something uh, that we could do that would be less devastating or, or violent? But maybe that's just wishful thinking and sounds good to feel and say. Uh, what you're saying is uh, seems to be a quite reasonable, rational point of view. Well, I've, I've been to Guantanamo Bay. I'm, one, I'm the only law professor in the country that works with the military to keep the facility open. We don't need to turn these people loose in any system uh, any system of thinking whatsoever. Their negotiating position, if you ask them, hey, what do you guys want? You want some land? You want some money? What do you really want? Their answer is, we want to kill you. They don't care that you're a liberal, <laughs> that you're a Catholic. In fact, they've killed more Muslims than Christians or Jews. If you want to do a body count, that's how they think. Well, I, you know, do people that oppose you, do they have some point of view that you, that you find credible? I mean, what do your opponents to this point of view say? What are What's their typical response? Well, you know, people that are critical of my way of thinking, I love to debate them because I intellectually destroy them. They simply <laughs> emote and they say, oh, that's just horrible. And can't we just take a Coca-Cola? That's not reality, my friend. 
everybody likes to eat steak, but they hate to think that there's you know men with lots of hair on their back killing animals in a slaughterhouse to provide that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is reality. Okay, well let's jump let's jump over to Syria and talk about that. Can you give a background, a brief background of how it got the way it is, or what is the situation here that uh, people are needing to escape? Yeah, well, Syria, of course, is ruled by a dictator by the name of Assad. His father was a dictator. Every country in the Middle East is run by a dictator. Some are more benign than others. Somehow, the West, including the Obama administration, they got up on their high horse and they said Assad must go. Why? I mean, Assad has not attacked us. He hasn't threatened to attack the United States. Um, and, you, you know, we should learn from history that when you replace one bad guy, generally it's worse than, than in the first instance. When the Shah was uh, deposed, uh, the Ayatollah came in, far worse than the Shah. So I'm not one of these that says, we've got to get rid of Assad. Why? Oh, he's a bad guy. They're all bad guys. I mean, the question is, are they attacking the United States? And if the answer is no, well, that's the way it goes. But right now, we've got able-bodied males that are all over the Middle East. Many of them are masquerading as Syrians. Most of these so-called refugees are in their 20s. They're able-bodied males, and they're fleeing for a better life. Now, I don't blame people for wanting to get out of their country to come to this country, but they want to infect us with the virus of Sharia law. Sharia law is incompatible with Anglo-Saxon law. It's incompatible. They who? The refugees? Well, X number of the refugees, yeah, absolutely. They have, they have no frame of reference for the way we look at the world. Okay, but in this Syrian thing specifically, what, what is going on? What is the crisis there uh, specifically that makes them need to flee? Well, because they see that we're suckers. They see, well, you're going to give me free food, a, a free house, a free check every month. Who, who wouldn't come? If you build it, they will come. And that that, that applies to any people. Well, I mean, that, that that's uh, – I don't understand that because the whole Middle East certainly is full of people who – in every country that would want to take a handout, as you put it, and stuff like that. But what is making us sensitive to the Syrian crisis? There, I mean, well, there's something going on. Yeah, there's a war. And therefore, somehow the do-gooders think there's a war and we've got to take care of the refugees. No, you don't. I'll tell you what. I'll be fair. I will take as many Syrian refugees into this country as, say, Saudi Arabia does, because that's a Muslim country. They're brothers, right? Guess how many Saudi Arabia has taken? Uh, Zero. 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 Not a single one. Um, And so we have no obligation to take these people into our country. No European country has an obligation. Oh, but they're suffering. Oh, well, you know, that's life. What I would tell these 20-year-olds, get a gun and do what my great-great-granddaddy did when you don't like things and fight them. That's what we did the British. Fight for your independence. Um, these people won't even fight for their own country, their own independence. Why in the world would a, would a country, a Western democracy, take them in? They don't think like we think. Um, and so there's no obligation for us to take any of these people in. Well, I mean, that's a really broad brush that everybody in the country, uh, I mean, that they includes women, children, helpless people, people afflicted, oppressed, people that believe probably similar to the way you do. And if it feels like you have no sympathy to those people at all. I'm as sympathetic to them as the Saudis are. A very wealthy nation right there, next door neighbors, they're Muslims, they're all Muslims. I'm as sympathetic as they are. How about that? Well, I, I mean, you you seem to not have very high regard for them and their morals, so I don't know it's totally fair to compare yourself uh, to them, but what about us as humanitarian agents? We, we have no responsibility. A country has the right to maintain borders. America is a homeland for Americans. Mm-hmm. We have the right to screen people that come into this country. Too long we've had an immigration policy that opens the door to people that 
cannot contribute to our country. My policy would be I will let people in here that can contribute. The fact that other countries around the world are basket cases, and there's a lot of countries that fall into that category, um, oh well, you know, do what my ancestors did, uh, embrace the, the concepts of capitalism, pick up your gun, and fight for your own freedom. I'm under no obligation to open our doors uh, at all, and I see no reason why we should. Well, I can understand that, I suppose, politically or uh Theoretically, but what about individually? If you were face to face with these people, if you uh, acknowledged them as people and and saw them, what would be your hope or care or advice for the individuals? My, my advice is get a gun and get a job. I've seen these people. I've been to almost every country in the world. I've seen poverty you can't even imagine in Africa and Haiti. I feel sorry for them, but that's life. Well, but you so you do feel sorry for them. But you have to separate them from Americans. Yeah, this, yeah, so are, so it's yeah. like there's different – like you have to draw the line somewhere. So you are going to care about Americans and stuff like that, but you're going to have to separate these people and say, I cannot – I have to disregard them. I, I'm a nationalist. I mean what's, what's in it for our country is my first question. If there's nothing in it for our country, oh well. Uh, you know, Again, my advice to these people is get your guns and fight for your freedom. That's how we were. I mean, you, you live in San Antonio, right? So just, I mean, right across your border, you know that there's terrible things and some bad conditions. And if you are aware of it and see it right in your view, then how does how, how does that affect you personally? I mean, how, how can you maintain uh, such an academic stance? Does your heart not go out to, to the people in that way? Well, it's not my problem. You, you're, you're from Mexico. Why am I on a guilt trip? Because people have it hard around the rest of the world. I'm sorry. I'm not going to feel guilty for other people. Uh, I want to take care of my own first. Mm -hmm. I would encourage other people. I'll tell them how our country became so great. You can do it too. So mm -hmm. I'm all about assisting other people. I'll give them a hand up, but I'm not going to give them a hand out. Mm -hmm. I want people that can, can contribute to the prosperity of America, not people that will drag us down. Uh, well, we got to educate, feed, clothe, house. No, I'm sorry. Stay in your own country. If you love your own country, then fight for your own country. That's what we did. Okay, so so the problem here then is radical Islam. Would you name it as such, or do you think the problem that we have is, in fact, the Middle East? Well, you know, as Harry Truman, our, one of our presidents, said, they said, what's your opinion of history? He said, it's just one damn thing after the other. I mean, we're not going to solve the problems of mankind they're going to continue until the, you know, until uh, until I'm a Christian, until of course the second coming. So right here in the here and now, life is a very, the world's a very dangerous place. Um, uh, and I feel for my fellow humans that are struggling. But my advice to them is, you know, you're going to have to fight for your freedom, fella. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. So if we have an obligation, like in Vietnam, where we, you know, pulled out of South Vietnam, we had an obligation to our allies that fought with us to bring them into this country. I'm all for that. We have no obligation to the Syrians. The Middle East is a wash. It's a mess. There's all sorts of problems. There always will be problems. I think our greatest thing to do is have energy independence so we don't have to rely on the oil over there. And therefore, we can let them stew in their own stew. They can figure out their own destiny. And it's in our interest to have energy independence so we don't have to be involved with those countries over there. We don't have to take their oil. We can take the own energy resources we have here. Okay, so, you know, solar, electric. Uh, stuff. No, no, I don't care about solar. That's a pipe dream. I care about oil, <laughs> a dollar a gallon, and we have enough oil here to last for hundreds and hundreds of years. And if we have a bird that gets oil on its wings, oh well, we clean it up and move on to the next one. Okay, well, this is difficult. I mean, it's uh, quite interesting, in fact. I, uh, 
I mean, I have to really respect the vast amounts of knowledge that you have and the experiences on orders of magnitude more than I do. Uh, some of it's really difficult and, and scary, and it feels, I don't know if it feels overly uh, pragmatic or ideological or academic. I'm not exactly sure what, what, how to describe it, but it's... Uh, but I know it can't be as simple as everybody be nice, let's just be nice, take care of everybody, and everything is going to work out. I understand that those realities are, are very much uh, there. So I have to really consider the points of view that you have. Uh, it, it means something to me, and, and I want to talk to some other people too because, like I said, I and I feel like most other people out there are not too knowledgeable, but the su- subject is tough. All you hear is, let's drink a Coca-Cola and embrace peace and let everybody in, and it's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate your uh, point of view and willingness to, you know, come on here and and share it. I know you're trying to do the best thing that you think is is the right thing to do, and some really good information too. I would let, do one self uh, plug. I've got a new book sure. out called Radical Islam: Why You Can Get It on Amazon. Everything I've said is in there, heavily footnoted with facts, figures, great Christmas gift. Um, you know, somebody wants one signed, just have them Google me and send me an email. I'll be happy to do that as well. And you'll sign it for them. So, and, and you're doing TV appearances, Fox News and stuff. Yeah, on the, on the 8th and 9th of, um, of, of December, as soon as I get back from Communist China, which I'm going over there tomorrow, on Tuesday, um, Fox News is, is, is set me up for a book signing. So, at, uh, again, you can Google the book, and um, it's... Uh, you know, it doesn't pull any punches, but again, I try to be as objective as I possibly can. All right. Well, good luck with your book. Jeffrey Atticott's book is called Radical Islam. Why? Jeffrey, thank you a ton. I hope you have a, have a good holiday and everything else. My pleasure. Same to you. Appreciate it. All right. And then I hope you enjoyed that with Jeffrey Atticott. Again, I was looking for some background information and, and stats and to really get a, a f- kind of a factual grip on it. Uh, the next guy I found that I wanted to talk to after that is a guy who has some th- uh, thoughts on policy and liberty and, go- and government involvement. Jason is a former force reconnaissance Marine, spent a lot of time deployed with boots on the ground in the Middle East. Uh, so he's got a lot of firsthand uh, perspective over there, which is I think is valuable. He does a podcast now, which I stumbled onto, and he talks about liberty and libertarian principles there. And I uh, listened to a couple of the episodes and really liked a lot of what he had to say. So I just hit him up, emailed him, told him who I was and who you guys, my listeners, are. And sure enough, was able to talk to him straight away later that day. So uh, here we go with Jason Stapleton. But specifically, what I wanted to get into is the, the piece you wrote. You wrote it and then read it on your show, and it was on the one about the attacks uh, on Paris. That's the- yeah, it was a it was a piece I wrote about uh, trying to calm the waters after mm-hmm. the attacks because I knew there was going to be a massive call to arms, mm-hmm. uh, and similar to what happened after September 11th, and and I wanted to try and cut off a lot of the neoconservative talk that I was hearing already, the rumblings about how we needed to get more involved in the foreign wars, mm-hmm. and so I I wrote that piece from uh, as a as one military man writing about my experiences overseas and and hopefully trying to convince some people that. There, it may be worthwhile to at least look at some other options before we start committing more young men to combat. Yeah, so even as a military guy, you, one might expect that with the you know boots-on-the-ground experience that you might be pro-military uh, action and stuff like that. And I was looking for somebody that I considered conservative to try to hold up this point of view because I know plenty of liberal-minded people that are all about peace and accepting refugees. Like That point's actually kind of really easy to see and maybe one that I naturally gravitate toward versus... Uh, 
take over, go to war, don't allow them, that kind of thing. And so for somebody that's educated, military background, and seem somewhat conservative, at least I would say, I don't know if that's the proper you know, description or not, for you to say we, we should take not action, we should calm the waters, not do that, I thought stuck out. So that's what I wanted to ask about. The first thing you were saying there is that, uh, that stood out to me in that piece was, you said that we're fighting an idea. It's not really a, a concerted enemy that we're, that we're, that there, that's out there. It's really just an idea that we're fighting. And how do you fight an idea? No, I'm not suggesting that you can't fight an idea. I'm suggesting that you don't win uh, the war. And what I what I mean by an idea is that the war we're fighting right now against uh, the the idea of of radical Islam, if that's the way you want to frame it, and I think that's a fair way to frame it, is uh, that you you don't you don't fight that idea with bombs or bullets because what you do is you create and foster even more mm-hmm. hatred. The more bombs that you drop and the more war you engage in, the more people you displace. The vast majority of people in the Middle East are not radical terrorists, and what you find is that even what you're doing by engaging in war in the Middle East is you are converting people who otherwise would be unsympathetic to a message of hate. Uh, from foreign countries like the like outside of the Middle East, uh, like Paris and in Italy and in the United States, because of all of the uh, collateral damage that you cause in a war like that. Yeah, takes people that and, are sitting on the fence and then makes them go, I guess these people are right, these radical people. Yeah, it, it, well, it, at least you become more sympathetic and you get mm-hmm. to a point where you just say, well, hey, I have to do something because of this evil, oppressive, you know, U.S. military or, or foreign governments that keep injecting themselves into matters that they shouldn't be injecting themselves in. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong what they believe. What I'm saying is that is what they believe. Mm-hmm. And so, because, and the second part of that, the second problem you have is there is not a standing military. So there isn't, it's not like Germany where we could bomb Germany and carpet bomb their cities until their government came and admitted defeat and said, please make the bombing stop. Uh, this It's not a war on nation against nation where the vast majority of the people who are inv- engaged in that war are simply members of a, of a national armed forces. Mm-hmm. What you have in the Middle East is you have only the people who are there, the only people who are fighting are people who are fanatical about the cause, who are willing to die simply to say that they were part of it. And with the no standing military, there's no there's no head of the snake to cut off. There's nobody to bring to the negotiating mm-hmm. table. Even when you when you talk about groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda, the news media wants you to believe that those are those that that's like a, a solid group. It's a cohesive group. When in fact that couldn't be any further from the truth. They're they're actually a collection of individual groups that coordinate together. And sure. uh, align themselves together when it when it suits them and when it benefits them. And you're already seeing fracturing of that between Iraq and Afghanistan, Al Qaeda in Iraq, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan versus ISIS in Syria and Al Nusra. The, these there's all kinds of competing factions in there. If we if we actually took a look at the battle space, what you would find is it's almost so confusing that one could not fully wrap their head around it. And what our government is suggesting is what we need to do is we need to engage in that. We need mm-hmm. to inject ourselves into the middle of that. I, I just, I think it's a very, very, very bad idea. Yeah, because it's not like there's enough men, women, and children that you could kill that would that would even stop it. And it might even just, it makes the problem kind of worse anyway, to even well, to do what, that. Uh, what I would say is, that, and I, I alluded to it in my piece, I said there is a way to win kill every man, woman, and child there. Uh-huh. You know, wipe their entire people off the face of the earth. 
that you could technically win if you could do that. That that is a, that is an end that I don't think any American, much less those in Congress who make the rules, would be willing to do. Yeah. Um, number one, I don't think it's moral or ethical to consider that as an option, as long as our, especially with our liberty not being directly threatened here at home. Um, but that would be the only way that you could make an an idea like that disappear. What I was suggesting in my piece was let's try disengagement for the last 12 to 14 years we've tried engagement on various levels either total engagement or partial engagement mm-hmm. and neither one of those had le- has led to the outcome that we desire so let's try something just a little bit different let's try disengaging let's stop injecting ourselves both militarily and politically in uh, in matters of state and matters of, of foreign policy that have no real bearing on our own freedom and liberty and see if that doesn't kind of quell and chop the legs out from under this this violent idea mm-hmm. that's been spreading through the Middle East. Well, don't you think, uh, or I don't know, but part of the troubling part for me is the people's reactions. And of course, and I think you even noted, it's justifiable to say, all right, we want blood. We're going to react here. We need to, we've got to, and it's justifiable. And I, I agree with that. I think that is a reasonable sentiment. Maybe it's not a good strategy, but why would the uh, some of the either media and politicians have such a stance that that, 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 are they just catering to that popular demand and that weakness uh, or short-sightedness of of human nature? Well, I think the politicians are no different than anybody else. They're they are they're affected emotionally. They they want to defend the country. Mm-hmm. Many of them. I think you've got other people like Lindsey Graham and John McCain who legitimately would love to see us in fifteen different armed conflicts around the world because they make a great deal of money and they receive a great deal of support. Are they from aware of that make- though? Do they do they know that in their own mind or not? Are the are the politicians like that? Are, realize they're just doing this for this and that reason, or do you think they genuinely believe what the stuff they're saying? In in my opinion, men like Lindsey Graham and and John McCain legitimately understand that what they're doing is that that they are campaigning in a sense for a, a larger military industrial complex. And I try and stay away from those types of terms because mm-hmm. they they have a very jaded uh, history. Yep. But you do have a a group of very large, powerful companies that make their money by us maintaining you know con- being constantly at war and men like. Like John McCain and Lindsey Graham receive a great deal of money from uh, donors like that, and they there is no possible way that they can look at the outcome of the decisions that they have made over the last to, you know ten to fifteen years and say that we are better and safer than we were before. They are advocating that position, in my opinion, because they financially benefit by doing so, not because it's in the best interest of America. The other thing about it is you said something that there that I thought was really interesting about politicians. They are telling people what they should do or what should be done versus them doing it themselves. And you put a lot of emphasis on individuals uh, doing what they think ought to be done versus, you know, these people, uh, surrogates, essentially, or money. Yeah, that's that's a very libertarian principle. It's it's a principle that says I am I am responsible for for my life. And in the event that so for example, let's say let's let's use the war as since we're talking about it. If America's liberty is not directly threatened, and what I mean by that is we don't have an army that's coming up against our borders and getting ready to assault America and deprive us of our constitution, our our life, liberty, and property, then we have no business engaging in foreign wars. That is a libertarian principle. Now, in my opinion, if that was the case, then we would 
have every every right to engage our military in defense, but our military should maintain a defensive posture, not an offensive posture. And there's a great deal of people who will disagree with me on that. This is just my experience and my opinion being a libertarian. Now, outside of that, you may look at the atrocities that are happening in Syria and in northern Iraq, and you may say, this is, this is a travesty. Mm-hmm. We ought to be doing something about that. And all I ask is that you say to yourself, why don't you replace we with I? Uh-huh. You see, there are people right now who have left their jobs, who have flown halfway across the world to fight alongside the Kurds to, right. try, and, uh, you know, to try and defeat this enemy. There are people who have gri- given hundreds and thousands of dollars to support the war effort over there because they personally believe believe in it. Uh-huh. But what they're not doing is they're not asking someone else to go and fight on their behalf. They're not asking someone else to pay. Yeah. This goes to the refugee crisis as well. You know, if you think that the refugee crisis is such a big deal and that somebody ought to do something about it, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you offer to take in refugees into your home? Why don't you agree to be responsible for their care and for the, and for providing for them and helping them find jobs mm-hmm. and establish themselves here in America? But you're not saying that facetiously. You're saying you no. actually can do that. Yes, I'm saying that is absolutely something that you have a right and responsibility to do. It's it, uh, What I have always said is, if I believe in something, if I really believe in it, then I have the responsibility, if not the obligation, to take action on my own, to do what I feel I can or to give what I feel I can, and to try and convince as many people as possible to Mm -hmm. do the same thing. But what I don't have the right to do is I don't have the right to go to someone else and say, I think this is important, so I'm going to make you give. So you should do it. Yeah. yeah, so you should do it. That's that's something that and that is a libertarian principle that says I I don't own you, I don't own your wealth. I don't have a right to tell you what to do with you know with yourself, with your body, with your money. Th- those are those are your decisions and I can try and uh, it, it convince you that what I want to do or what I'm suggesting we do is the best possible outcome, but I can't compel you by force. Right. Yeah, not to mention, rightly, it it does, you know, the refugee thing is one, but as far as fighting an enemy, really the enemy we have isn't necessarily over there anyway. It's a good case to be made that the only enemies that we really have already are here. They're in this country. And that, and that is, you're exactly right. And so if we, if we shift this idea and say, well, okay, well, where should we be, where should government, where should we as individuals be using our money and our resources? Well, in my opinion, we should be protecting our lives, our liberty, and our property here at home against those people who may already be here. With uh-huh. uh, the refugee crisis, in my opinion, um, it, it, we can. It, one of the things is you, there's no possible way you can vet refugees coming here to America. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. And so I've always said, well, one of the main functions that I believe government is is needed for is to protect uh, the populace from things like you know, foreign wars and foreign armies. Well, certainly an insurgency would be another thing that government would have a responsibility for. Mm -hmm. And if government cannot provide reasonable assurances that the people they're bringing here are not uh, associated with uh, the radical Islam that is and, and the radical violence that's happening overseas, then we have a responsibility not to bring those people here. You say any of them. Any of them, yeah. yeah, that'd be correct. My uh, natural and, and thought would not be to go that way. I find you compelling, however, but I don't, I don't know that much about it. But it would seem like statistically, it wouldn't be that many. I don't know what the possible loophole is, but you know, you think that bringing them over would lead to? You think they would just 
really take advantage of the loopholes there and and the no no I, I I don't suggest that anyone we would bring over would even be a, would even be a radical you know mm-hmm. associated with radical Islam that's not what I'm suggesting My, mine is more of a specific argument to what is the role and responsibility of government it certain certainly one of the main responsibilities is protecting the population and that is a that is a role of government in my opinion I understand there, there that as a people, role but help me understand first of all why they can't be vetted why is that not possible well, mainly because how is it going to be done? So in, normally in America, we have when you're born, you receive a social security number. Every time you're arrested, there's a database of that. There's a federal database that you can go to and you can look at and say, yeah, this guy's got felonies. He spent 10 years in prison for armed robbery. How do you do that in Syria? Unless a guy has come up on a terror watch list somewhere, yep. and that would mean he would be some upper echelon uh, terrorist, right. there's absolutely no way for you to vet him. Well, so, but th- but would that not be true about all refugees anywhere or, you know, just... There's got to be some element of threat to any border, anything, any visas that we take from other countries, even through legitimate means, there's still some risk. So what makes you... Th- what makes you th- feel like it like what's the threshold of of not acceptable risk that makes this different than than other things well I, I don't necessarily think this is different than any other thing I think if you have someone who if you're if you have a nation where you have someone who's coming here who can be vetted then you make accommodations for that um, so it, it, it not necessarily coming from Syria or let's say that you've got someone coming from China or coming from Singapore mm-hmm. and they want to immigrate to this country or Mexico well certainly they have uh, deeper databases where the government can provide a reasonable assurance that someone is not going to is not coming to the country to directly do us harm and that term reasonable assurance is is a is a vagary that i i realize exists yep. because it's impossible for the government to be 100 percent sure that somebody's not going to do something wrong but i think that in in the syria case there just isn't any way to provide any assurance there is no way to vet well other is than, there another acceptable or useful humanitarian thing uh, what what Given any humanitarian or sympathy to these people, what do you think is a, a proper course of action for the Syrian people? Well, a proper course of action is if you believe that we need to be doing something for you to write a check, for you to send money to an organization who's working over there, mm-hmm. or for you to become a member of an organization that goes there to help, mm-hmm. and for you to do everything that you can to try and support the people because you feel like it is a worthy and honorable and noble cause. And you would say there the no- U.S. government has no should, – should, the proper thing for U.S. government to, to do would be absolutely nothing? Yes. Okay. That's interesting, but but that's not anti. That's interesting because it's not anti-humanitarian or unloving or any of that stuff. It's actually putting responsibility where responsibility ought to be. Is, it which puts is on responsibility the on the individual. That's correct, and so it's it's not that we don't care about them. It's not that we we want them to die in foreign countries and that we don't want to take them in. Mm-hmm. It's that I don't believe that I have a right to tell you that you have to give to bring a foreign national here. Uh, to provide for them, that that mm-hmm. that to me is is theft. That to me is a gross violation of your liberty and, and your property and your justly earned uh, you know money. So you use I don't, the I don't term right liberty to, to cut through. Use it as your razor to cut through what ought to and ought not to be done. Essentially, well, I believe that government exists for one of three purposes for for three purposes to protect life, liberty, and property. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, government serves no 
no purpose whatsoever. They sh- should not be engaged at any level. And that is a very much a libertarian belief. And one of the things that you will notice is all of the major problems that we see, both domestically and internationally, come when government leaves its core role of providing for life, liberty, and property and starts applying what we would consider positive rights onto people. So you have a right to health care, or you have a right to uh, you know protection here, or you have a right to uh, uh, a job or a minimum wage. All of that has negative consequences. Everybody wants to be charitable. Everybody wants to have that great feeling like they've done something nice for somebody else. But what you need to understand is when you're advocating for bringing people here from a foreign country, if that's what we're talking about, about the refugee issue, um, what you're advocating for is that somebody else pay to bring this third mm-hmm. party here so that you can feel good about your position on the whole thing. But I try and show people, listen, you're hurting the people that you're trying to help. This is not the best way to do it. And, and let me try and show you what I think is a better way. Because we can, but, but you, but I'm not saying missing from your point of view as well thought out and reason, but what I want to keep understanding and reminding is you're saying we both agree we want to help people get a good wage or do well with their family and we want to help even you you would say that you do want to help and have a heart for the syrian people i i haven't heard you say that yet but i'm assuming that you're saying even you personally have an opinion that is uh you want what would be good for those innocent people I, I I do. Let me let me clarify. And then how do we I get? I'm, that, I'm not trying to paint you in the bad light. Yeah. I'm saying, but yeah. now that if we can agree on that, now we can discuss what would be the most simply effective way to do that, or most just the best the best way to do it. One of the things I try and explain to people early on is, hey, we both want the same thing. Whether you're a, a progressive who wants to provide charity to people and believes we have a responsibility to help the poor um, or whether you're a neoconservative who thinks that we need to, you know, we need to, to defend the weak and helpless. I'm right there with you, brother. I want all of those things too. But I just believe that we have to, we have to, uh, it's a, it's a personal responsibility issue. It's Mm -hmm. not one where we can advocate and force someone else to provide that benefit. So yeah, I, I, I think that we're in absolute agreement that we want to try and help people who are in need. You feel like you are effective and able to change people's point of view, or do you feel like you just wind up talking to the people that are in the liberty camp? No, no. I, I have made great strides to try and convince and to try and move outside of just the libertarian camp, mm-hmm. because it's very easy when you talk to just libertarians that they they all get it. It's like, yeah, you know, don't take my stuff. Don't hurt people. That Yeah, we all agree on that. It's. I have five principles that I kind of wrap my life around and my show around, and the five principles are limited government, peace, tolerance, individualism, and free markets. Mm-hmm. And I say those are the things that I believe in. I would challenge your audience to take those principles away and, and see if they can't uh, reaffirm their own belief system around it. Yeah, and those principles to you have led you to the following conclusions. Number one, disengagement militarily, and then uh, also responsibility not to act or take in refugees. So that's kind of nuanced because the polarities go yes to both or no to both kind of thing. So that's what I think is interesting about it. It must be of your principles and, and reason that got you to to that one. But have, have I got you right there? Disengagement military and as far as bringing refugees to this country, no. Well, yeah, I think that's uh, that. that is a fair assessment. I, I think the caveat I would make is that I am uh, – 
Um, I'm not opposed to refugees coming to America as long mm-hmm. as the government can provide reasonable assurances. And I'm not entirely sure that disengagement will work. Right. I'm just simply looking at it and saying, hey, we've tried engagement on one level or another for the past 12 years, and it's been an utter failure. How about we try something different? So we try a peace approach rather than a, a, a violence and war approach. And so I, I don't I don't claim to suggest to you that it, that would work. I'm just saying, let's try something different and see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I recommend people to go read the thing that you wrote. It's on the Paris Attacks episode of your podcast. It's the Jason Stapleton show, and I'm sure you can find you online anywhere as a Jason Stapleton, I'll be listening to you in the future, and I appreciate your time today, Jason. Thank you. And thank you for having me. All right, Jason Stapleton. So next up, I wanted to get into and try to understand why people react as much and as strongly and get so heated about this and so opinionated and how to cut through that a little bit. So I thought I'd uh, get in touch with our buddy Science Mike, and we could just you know do what we do together and, and talk about talk about these things, the brain, psychology, human behavior a little bit as it relates to, to this matter. So uh, here we go, Science Mike. First of all, I was just curious what's your point of view on terrorism and refugees are in a general way, and then specifically, why are we, we being all the people here in America and on social media, behaving the way that we're behaving? What do you think about all that? In general, I would say, one, it is dangerous when human belief systems place a greater value on, a, on death than life. Anytime you can convince a human brain that their death has meaning, they become willing to sacrifice their lives, and it changes the you know neuroethics of how we make decisions. I see, uh, and that that's da- I even get nervous when I hear Christians saying how willingly they would die for their faith. On one level, there is uh, some nobility to that idea. I guess I just also understand how easy. Yeah beliefs like that can be hijacked. So that super radical thing, when you have something super radical like death being the primary thing or not, I mean, the whole human brain is designed to operate within the construct of death being avoided, right? So if you flip that, it's weird consequences, perhaps. Totally. You can imagine that whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, we've been shaped so that in most circumstances, we want to preserve our lives. But if we get our back against the wall, and our lineage is threatened, our tribe, our children, our, our relatives' children, that we've been designed in such a way that mm. we can desire our own death if we think it preserves our tribe. I see. And that's what's happening with terrorism is those instincts are being hijacked and weaponized. And so you feel like those a lot of those people are even preyed on. Or they genu- the terrorists genuinely believe it. That's one of the scary things is they believe that what they're doing is right or good or positive. They're not just simply trying to be evil or bad. Yes, and you'll also notice typically suicide bombers and people who carry out terrorist attacks are not um, studied religious folk. Uh-huh. They tend to be radicalized from a state of, uh, you know, either a, a very casual faith or no faith at all. They're often recent converts, um, and so it seems that that longer study, more in-depth study, and more scholarly approach to faith tends to inoculate someone 
against this to some degree. Um, what you'll see a lot of times is people have lived in Western countries, grown up in Western culture, and then they see what things are like in either where they were born or their family's country of origin, and they're radicalized, and new ideas are put into their head, and typically they face some kind of um, either obliquely or uh, overtly racist or, or ethnocentric environment where in some way they the color of their skin or their family's belief system has been limiting to them and suddenly they find a lot of acceptance, a lot of encouragement, and they're told that if you do this, you know, you get X number of virgins on the other side, or your family gets glory in such a way, and in a in a very planned series of progressions, they're turned into weapons. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, really terrifying stuff. Uh, now on the refugee side, well, let me let's well, just stay I, there if, if you don't mind. I'm interested in that. So if that's the case, though, then these people are these pe- people being terrorists. I'll only say that are to be feared. They we, they we should be scared of them. I assume. So now it is reasonable to fear them. It yes. is reasonable to fear them. Period. And then it's a matter of there's a lot of other stuff to parse out and to sort through. But uh, you know, so it's not that crazy that people. I feel like it's crazy when I see stuff on social media, people I went to high school with, people that I, I'm not trying to say they're ignorant or dumb, but I go, wow, that's incredible, the kinds of things you would, the kind of reactions that you would have, but uh, they're kind of based maybe rightly somewhat in, in fear, so what's wrong with that? Are we not controlling our fear well or as a group? Well, here's what happens to a brain in fear. Uh, that's centered in something called your amygdala. That's an almond-shaped organ that's mm-hmm. in two halves on the other side of the brain that controls fear and anger. And when you get into a chronically or perpetually fearful state where your amygdala is in a near-constant state of arousal, it changes the way that you evaluate the world. And one of the so most, too much Fox News will do that to you. Too much CNN, too much MSNBC <laughs> yeah, will do it, that yeah. to you. But what happens, and this is telling, this will explain a lot about both sides of this issue in America. When you get into a perpetual state of amygdala arousal, be that fear or anger, your brain starts to exhibit higher degrees of in-group, out-group bias. Meaning you become more xenophobic or hostile towards people as you identify as being part of a different group than yourself. In the case of progressives, they become very hostile towards American conservatives. In the case of conservatives, they become hostile both towards American progressives and towards uh, other people groups. But because, again, when I talk about labeling, neurocognition, part of progressive values is to be open to different cultures, different experiences, and different people groups, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why, even as they entrench, they remain open to what they see as their tribe. Um, But it's not that they're in some way morally or ethically superior to conservatives. It's simply that their labels... Cause the brain to function different in terms of identifying in group and out group. So, do you think we can tell the difference, or or is it worth sorting out the difference in what we see from reactions from people that are fear or hate? They're going to do the same thing to the brain. Mm -hmm. Fear, hate, anger, they're all going to cause this this ongoing state of amygdala arousal, and that's going to subvert the functioning of the prefrontal cortex to have rational decision-making, intentional focus, Mm -hmm. and to accept new information. When your amygdala is activated, you are trying to hold the line or win an argument, and that's it. Yeah, that's just just survival in, in, in a sense, and then just have this really weird 
weird avenue to debate and see it online that we maybe haven't really seen before. And I noticed that, like, I was, uh, you know, I was on the road last week or two weeks ago whenever the Paris attacks happened and stuff, and my wife talked to me and she said, well, this is... This is scary. This is dangerous. And she was talking about when I get home, she says, we're going to have to really be careful, she said. And so I want to talk about what that would even mean, because when she said that, I was like, well, what what do you mean be careful? I mean, this was a rock club in a city. Like, it, it, the, the terrorists, the tax and stuff that they, that they have, first of all, are statistically to me very, I'm not trying to be hyper-rational here, but they almost never happen in a way. You're, de- in you're absolutely correct. And if they you're do happen, the only point of them is them happening in an unexpected way, in an unexpected place that certainly, you know, other care wouldn't doesn't even seem to do anything. So I, I really feel like I want to say, well, I guess just don't worry about it then because it would, if it could only be something, first of all, it's not likely to happen, even if we knew there was 20 terrorist attacks in the country, still, that still is terrible for our country, but not likely to happen. There's nothing I could think we could do behavior-wise that I could suggest to her that would make us even a lick more safe. And really, I don't even feel like we're in danger. If you want to be safe in life, if you want to do some rational fears, drive fewer miles per year in an automobile, right. exercise more regularly, limit fat intake in your diet, <laughs> Those are the killers of human beings and Americans today. Absolutely. Uh, mass shootings, acts of terror, even homicide are not sig- statistically significant things to fear. Um, now, that doesn't mean that those things aren't travesties that we should be working yeah. to eliminate from society. Don't misunderstand me. But for people to expend so much personal energy, uh, being fearful of their own life in the context of those situations is actually irrational. Sure. I mean, even police I violence was in London, is probably more likely going to get us than than terrorist violence, right? I don't know the numbers on it, but you know, statistically in America, yeah, police violence would be a bigger risk to your life, right, frankly, especially right. if you're not white, <laughs> than uh, terrorism violence for sure. You were in, um, you were it, in London. You say you're over. Uh, we were in London when the Paris attacks. Oh, happened. you were. I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, in East London, in a, a very Muslim neighborhood, and I didn't feel unsafe sure. at all. A lot of people Not would have, all. though. I mean, I, yeah, I would well, say most people my, would have been really nervous about the people with that those head coverings. I mean, that alone would probably freak a lot of people out. They'd be very uneasy there. I made an extra effort to strike up conversations, mm-hmm. to uh, get to know people, um, you know, with... In London, uh, a, a day before we were on one tube line, a man pushed a Muslim woman into the train. Um, and so I wanted to do whatever small part I could uh-huh. <laughs> to better represent the West yeah. to those people in London. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of the thing. You know, I think we all agree terrorism is bad. Sure. And scary. I, I think, and worthy and scary. to be scared of. Th- everyone should fear that. What we need to understand is I think science is pretty clear on how you deal with terrorism, Um, and that is you educate and economically empower people, especially women. Uh Because remember I said in order to weaponize this neurocognitive lever of a martyr's death, of a meaningful death, someone has to be convinced that they and their tribe have their back against the wall. Right. And there no, there aren't any other options, uh, which is why you don't see 
the same kind of radicalization in Christianity because generally Christians are economically prosperous in the modern world. Right. Um, and it's just, this is the, the fire hose that goes against the fire that's happening in Syria. Now, right now in Syria, the conflict has devolved to the point that you can't possibly come in with economic or education solutions. And, and it's There's not, not it's basic not immediate, infrastructure. You know, it's not near as immediate as bombs and bullets and kind of thing. But, I mean, that kind of seems like the problem with it is even if you're prone to or, or, or willing to combat that that. Thing, the scary thing, the bad thing, terrorism, it's not easy to do because it's really just a concept and an idea that you're fighting more than an individual or a group or a nation state. I would maybe liken fighting terrorism to fighting racism. It's bad. It's a problem. It's something that you, you should stop. And if the atrocities happen in its name, you say, well, we got to get them. But who is them and how do you get them? kind of thing you can get the individuals of course but the problem of terrorism is much like the problem of racism it's one of of just beliefs and of ignorance and of or 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 some or intolerance so they're they're vague things that that we have to battle and they're not things that you could just necessarily overcome with power or force so that's the part so of ter- terrorism and racism are both ideological problems certainly i think the difference is terrorism is a reaction to groups that feel powerless and racism tends to be a collection of unthinking or intentional biases by uh groups that have the most power mm-hmm. so they're they're similarly um dangerous and insidious but they have kind of opposite social power dynamics but either way wouldn't you say that the best weapons against them would be cognitive then absolutely yeah and not you know physical force yeah you would yeah it wouldn't work you couldn't i don't think in either case uh i mean you have to use the force you need to keep society safe although that is something i struggle with all the time well we'll get there Um, next with the refugees that's an an out thing of that but yeah I mean, you have to keep people safe, for sure. Yeah, but in general, it's um, it's education and personal experiences are mm-hmm. going to turn those things around. So, in the in the to the matter of keeping people safe, then we shouldn't let any refugees in the country. Then, right? We should let in as many refugees as we possibly can to keep our children safe. Okay, let let me convince me of that one. When we don't let refugees in. Or we let them in and we, you know, put them in some kind of extremely limited camp situation or, 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 or ghettos or what have you. You are creating the soil to deny or restrict education and economic power empowerment generationally. And therefore, you are engineering more terrorists in the future. So, limiting refugees might be statistically safer in the very near term, like months of time Uh but in the years and decades timeline it is much more dangerous to a civilization to try to keep out um these people that we view as scary the fact is if you look at american history and in most countries um allowing refugees into a country has not generally turned out to be a bad thing for that country Mm -hmm. Um, so what I'd like to see is not only let the refugees in, but bring them into the culture, bring them into the job market, bring them in as consumers, uh, make them a part of the American economy, uh-huh. and then they become very difficult to radicalize right. because they have something to lose. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, I suppose I see what you're saying there. So, but you're you're accepting some amount of risk that unvetted uh, refugees could be masquerading terrorists. I think some inevitably will be. Okay. But, but you those would, people are going to find a way to strike the United States anyway. Mm-hmm. If we if we fall into the, the, the fear-based ideology of keeping people out or, you know, judging a large people group based on the nefarious actions of a few, we lose. So having more of them, having more of the Syrians or, or even Muslims or even anybody, even, even semi-radical, anything but radical Muslims in our country – on enough, if there was enough number and scale, we would less identify each other as the other. I would love personally to have Syrian refugees over to my house, yeah. and I would love personally to hire them to work with me. Now, do you think that's the government's responsibility, or there's more individual stuff that we should be doing in order to achieve that? I mean, I'm the guy. I don't care who does it. I just wanted to get done. Mm-hmm. Is it people? I don't care. I mean, the government's the one that'll have to open access to the country and vet people. People do need to be vetted, of course. We already have excellent, you know, there's nobody more vetted um, than refugees entering the United States. Uh-huh. Nobody. People coming on a, on, a, on a visa are less vetted than a refugee. Um, but, you know, and they probably need some assistance out of the gate. They're going to go with no, no currency. Um, I mean, these are people... Uh, Imagine if, if in your home city it had been leveled by civil war, your home was gone, everything you had was destroyed, and you you were literally a podcaster or a shopkeeper or a teacher before this happened. Mm-hmm. You've never been in any military conflict, um, and someone let you into a country and then just kind of put you in a camp and said, okay, here you go, or worse, just set you and your family on the street and said, well, good luck. Um, that that creates that soil for radicalization because these are people going to struggle and, and be on the edge of poverty. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do think – and again, I'm speaking completely pragmatically. I don't care about the, the larger issue of, of big government versus small government. I'm saying in terms of limiting future radicalization and terrorists that will use their own lives as weapons, the best thing to do – is bring people in and help them find economic security, which, by the way, a lot of the people have <laughs> valuable job skills we need anyway. So sure. some way to connect them with with opportunities is, is going to be helpful as well. Well, at this point, I'm still confused on the vetting because I talked to somebody else that says vetting is almost impossible with the records and this and that or whatever. So that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to sort through. But uh, certainly, I agree with uh, with what you're saying in, in general, and it's – you know, it's the way that we. Pro- I think there's a lot of it just to be pragmatic and to use <laughs> use your mind and logic to sort through it. So, because I see things that seem illogical to me, from of course the terrorist side to my wife, and then a lot of people I went to high school with, and people in the bad Christian Facebook group, and I mean, there there's tons of people, and I just look at every one of them, and go, well, that doesn't. I mean, I'm almost nothing I'm hearing from any side seems to make a ton of sense. So it's a pretty confusing issue, at least, don't you think? Uh, I will say it is so immensely complex that I don't like blame people for having a uh-huh. hard time clearly articulating their position. I I still feel more lost than not, um, especially if I try to if I try to tease out if I try to figure out who's at fault here or who needs to be punished or whatever. 
That's why I have to retreat, look at it more in the way we understand through science how human beings behave. And then if I you know, start with a clean slate, how would I engineer a solution to a neurocognitive problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand also that that kind of thinking is the most expensive thinking human brains can do. It uses the most calories, consumes the most oxygen, and that our brains are biased against it. So I don't blame people for using the neuro shortcuts of, of, of uh, yeah. social identity and emotions to well, arrive to at their decisions. to some degree, you feel like you want to combat things that seem like hate online, right? Oh. Or you think the leave, it just leaving that be is okay, too? I'm not an online warrior. Yeah. I just don't do it. Yeah, I and people that are are ready to have interesting, salient, coherent discussions. I'm there. As soon as it turns uh-huh. into, you know, somebody wants to fight, I say peace be with you. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you, know, you know, and then on the other side, I would push from uh, on the other of the end of that is I sure do have a lot of like liberal warrior, you know, anti hate friends too that I feel like man I don't guess anybody's going to listen to you, you or, or you sound self important and self righteous in your love and what you you think is the right answer or the good thing to do but I don't know if that's I don't know if I totally buy that from those people and I feel like they're just speaking to their own people reinforcing their biases against against the other that might be you know the, the that's other human nature yeah it's human nature and I don't fault people for it but I always I spent too long in advertising I'm not going to say something unless it's going to land with somebody. Right. And so I am very intentional in how I use language to keep people's amygdalas asleep so we can have a discussion that might actually result yeah. in changed views. But by appealing to the lower brain, it, it, it hijacks the higher brain. So if you present information to someone mm-hmm. or ideas in a story form, Six to eight weeks later, they're going to repeat that information, and they're going to say it like it's their own idea. Mm-hmm. They won't even remember they got it from this story. Yeah, <laughs> You're literally taking someone from one point of view and setting them in another point of view through a narrative view temporarily. Yeah. Once they come back to their own view, they bring some of those feelings and some of those ideas with them unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for communicators, that's a fantastic tool, which, you know, even when I'm, I'm doing more, um, you know, more brainy stuff, like on the liturgist podcast, I still tend to insert a lot of personal yeah. stories and, and, uh, other kind of content that helps people, helps people get out of their own reference frame. Yep. Certainly a weakness of mine. I want to just tell people stuff as my f- default mode i just want to tell you a whole bunch of stuff and then you have to hear it and then you can't disagree after you hear it right that's typically what i like to the most powerful way to communicate is to tell a story and include mm-hmm. the stuff yeah that's what drives behavioral that. change more than anything is you so you know when one study they told um they presented the facts and figures of smoking they told the story of a son who lost his father to lung cancer, and then to a third group, they included the facts and figures in a story of a son who lost his father to lung cancer. And that third group exhibited mm-hmm. the highest behavioral change over a 12-month period. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't have had you on. I should have found a refugee. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> well, Mike, I appreciate the point of view today. Help, thank you for helping me think through this a little bit. Oh, man, thanks for having me on. Right on.
Okay, so Science Mike, brilliant as always, really fun to talk to. And so now at this point, after I spoke with him, I really felt like what was missing especially after talking to Science Mike, was a per- something personal, a personal story, a personal connection, something that was real and not just theoretical. And I realized after I got off with him that, oh, I, I know people that are, that are connected to this, and that's the Under Oath guys, and, uh, people that knew the guy Nick who was, who was killed. So the reason that this is, uh, really sticks out to me or is profound is because uh, we tour Europe. We're, we're over there a lot in these same kinds of clubs. We've been there with Under Oath, in fact, uh, and uh, we have people over there that work for us. There's a guy named Patrick who's from the Czech Republic who drives our van, tour manages us, texts for us whenever we are in Europe. And so this is a, essentially the equivalent of our European crew member, Patrick, being killed. This, this is Chris Dudley from Underoath, and he uh, was friends with and knew on, on a real level somebody that worked for them that was you know murdered by murdered by terrorists it's just too hard to even imagine what that is and so i really wanted to talk to chris he's easy to talk to a really gentle guy and i'm I'm just kind of really curious to as how he would react or would he be altered or changed or how would this color his thinking on the matter to be affected directly so uh here we go last one this is chris dudley from under oath he definitely was one of the victims there and uh how long was that after it went i mean how long after it happened did you find out that it was him and then that he uh yeah i want to say it was probably about it was a matter of hours um you know i'm saying Mm -hmm. probably a matter of four to six hours uh from the time that i heard about it to when word got to us that uh that he had been involved in it um and uh yeah it's it's crazy because like I've never had anyone even remotely close to me involved in anything like that. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I I have friends that had family members that were affected by 9-11 personally and that sort of stuff. But I had never really been affected personally by uh, by anything like this. So it was it's obviously completely foreign to me. but tell me about Nick. How I mean, what did he do for you, and how much did you know him? Yeah, he was um, he was our merch guy uh, when we would go over to Europe, and um, I don't know specifically how many tours he did with us, but it just it was just one of those things. Whenever we went to Europe, Nick was on the bus. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know you guys have uh, you guys have a guy like that as well, and um, it's yeah, it's crazy. Like I, you know, we knew him really well. Like um, it's. Uh, you know, I mean, you know how it is being on tour. Like you'll, you just see someone all day, every day. You're living in a metal tube with them for weeks at a time. Like you know, we would be up late, having, you know, late night bus talks and just you know, dudes. What nationality was he? He spoke English first language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, I think. I think it was. He was from the UK somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know specifically what city he was from, but um, but yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was a. Uh, a Briton and, um, just, uh, just a great dude, like really, uh, good person to be around. Like he just had a really good vibe. Like when you're around him, you're just like, man, like I would just want to be around this guy more. 
Yeah. Well, he must have been. He did. It must have done a good job. and been super solid. He worked for Panic the Disco and Allison Chains and you know you guys and and everybody else. I'm trying to remember. Is it possible that he was on tour? That I've met the guy. Was he on tour with us when we were in Europe together? Would he have been with you guys then? Man, honestly, I'm not sure. Like, I'm the worst at that sort of thing because a lot of that stuff just kind of is a blur to me as far as what bands yeah, and what where. cities and yeah yeah there's a good chance though i mean you know most of the time when we were in europe he was with us um so he was uh yeah he was a great guy man really really great guy well, I'm, re- I'm really sorry to hear that i know that's a personally i know you know affected you guys for sure to, to i mean i can't it's really hard to imagine i guess that the closest thing to it is there's been some guys in bands that we've known have died so beats from bayside died yeah. driving down the highway where we all drive down on 80 in wyoming that was about 10 years ago and then mm-hmm. casey from uh, hawthorne heights died and that, you mm-hmm. know, that was the same kind of situation somebody we knew we didn't know beats really but Casey we knew real well and he died in tour bus a couple hours north of us from where we were playing that night and those are big deals but this is just weirder this is different in the sense that the cause of it is uh oh I mean it's murder I mean it's not the same thing as an accidental death or an accident at all yeah so it's like totally off the charts of radar what I really want to know how it has affected your thinking about the topic or about ISIS or about terrorism or about Islam even. Yeah. Like I, I was actually talking with my wife about this the other night, like just the state of things in the world. And, you know, among that, you know, terrorism and, you know, a war that seems like it's been going on since, I was a kid and is that shows really no signs of stopping at any point and all that stuff. And I don't, I don't know if it's simplistic or if it is bad, but like it just, what happened to Nick really didn't change the way that I feel about a whole lot. Like I'm still just like, man, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I, there, I know that, 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 all these topics are so complicated and it's not black and white, but I, there's some things that, you know, as a Christian, I view as black and white, you know, it's like, you know, we need to love, we need to not murder people and that sort of thing. And, um, uh, you know, as far as terrorism goes, it's like, I, I just, it's such a foreign concept to me i cannot even grasp it so so you don't i mean how about fuck isis though is that not an emotion you have yeah but it hasn't it hasn't really changed now what i was feeling you know when i'm when i'm seeing these videos of them like beheading people i'm Mm -hmm. just like you know what the hell are these people doing like you know they it, yeah, it, it, <laughs> I, it, it feels a lot closer to home, but my core feeling about it is still just like, just mind blown. Like it, I just cannot grasp any of that, you know? And, and I think so much of it, I think gets distilled in the media down to, okay, well, you know, we have like a Muslim problem. And, you know, I have friends who are Muslim and I have spoken to them and they're just like, man, like we cannot catch a break. 
you know, like <laughs> these are yeah. like good, good people and, you know, not crazy at all, you know, just legit human beings. And, you know, it's, it's such a complicated topic because I've, I've been like, Hey, like, you know, it sucks for you guys because like every one of these people seems to be a Muslim and they're like, yeah, we know, but they're like extremists on, on a super far end. And, and one, one of my, uh, one of my, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't have like a hundred Muslim friends. I have two, but one of them was telling me, he was like, yeah, he's like, well, if you look back at like the Christian crusades, he was like, if you lived at that point in time, you would view Christianity in a similar light because it's, it would seem like all this bad stuff that was going on seemed to be traced back to Christianity. He mm -hmm. was like, it's not what you hold as your core belief, but you know, you're, you're being lumped in with all these other people. And, you know, but then I hear all, so many arguments on one side and the other, not necessarily about the Muslim issue, but about just, you know, refugees, war, terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. And there's so many arguments on so many different sides that seem to make sense. And I feel like it, it, it's about how that religion itself is dangerous and fosters and, you know, bad ideas and extremism. And, and that, you know, there's the notion that a good amount of, of non extremist Muslims still, p people would say, even understand or sympathize with ISIS, but maybe aren't as extreme, for instance. That kind of stuff, you mean? Yeah. And, and I, and I have not like, like read the Quran. I'm not educated in any of this stuff. And I'm just like, you know, so many times I just don't know what to think. Like, but I also feel like there's such an, like, I, I feel this across the board with a lot of things, but I feel like there's such an agenda as far as the media goes, like everyone's trying to push their narrative on mm -hmm. what they want every event that happens to say. And I'm like, I really want to just be able to turn to like one information source and just be like, okay, what the hell's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, just, so uh, when when you found out that about Nick in the days or after that or whatever, did if you found that if you found out or when you found out that that France is going to close down the borders and then go do some attacking and bombing over there, how do you receive that? Well, when I because I, I think it was directly after that i think i had heard that it was was it france or russia that went and did bombing directly after that yeah they made both i don't even i actually don't even know the answer to that yeah but, but i but my my immediate reaction was like hell yeah like you know they like i i had this like uh this gut feeling of just like yeah those guys are getting it done like you know, oh, you're going to do this. Okay. We know who ISIS took responsibility. So we are going to go and drop bombs, you know, but, but then after that, I went and I did some reading and I was looking at, okay, you know, exactly what was done by who it's, uh, yeah, man, I don't know. And then, you know, you have all the, uh, the whole thing with the Syrian refugees and everything. Yep. And that's a whole topic that I think is just spewing out of all this other stuff. And I feel like there's just a whole lot of fear. So and, you don't feel like you're getting any good information or still don't know what to think. And it also doesn't seem like you're overly colored by the personal connection to this. Yeah. I, and I, part of me feels bad for that. Like part of mm -hmm. me feels like I, I should be like, 
they did this to my friend, so we need to nuke somebody. Yeah. You know, and I feel like I should feel that, but I don't. Like, I feel like I, I know, like, the, the, the Syrian refugee thing is kind of bleeding into this because mm-hmm. there is there was reports that one of one or two of the attackers had posed as Syrian refugees going into France and that's how they got in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I know people are like, well, hell, like, shut down the border. Right. And even though I have this, like, personal connection to what happened, like, in this, w- with this topic in particular with the refugees, like, I don't feel that way. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, and you're, a, you're maybe a little bit of a different kind of guy, Chris. You are uh, what is what is known as a really nice guy and an empathetic guy and a caring guy. So I wouldn't be surprised to hear that you were, in the general way, pro-refugee and anti-violence. That would be consistent with what I would say is your general character. However, how interesting is it that somebody potentially crossed a border as a Syrian refugee and murdered one of your friends, and now they're talking about bringing Syrian refugees over to this country where you're going to go play rock shows and have a merch guy and do all those same things, and you're, and you're saying that you're still sympathetic to the refugees coming into this country? I mean, it'd be very reasonable for you not to be. Yeah, like, I, the way I look at it is from what I know, you know, the amount of innocent people who are who are legitimately fleeing terrorism like they are trying to get away from the exact thing that we're trying to fight and they're trying to mm-hmm. find somewhere to go and you kind of look at it as a risk versus reward sort of thing like i i heard somebody talking the other day and they were just saying like you know we take risks every day with our with our living and everything we do from, you know, from driving a car to swimming to, you know, doing anything we do, there's an, there's an amount of risk involved, but you have to weigh that with, you know, what good can come of what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's a good point because if you're saying is the very thing that we're afraid of that would make us take some preventative action is the very thing that there are, I don't know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people that are in, absolutely direct threat of right now and yes if we do bring them over we're still individually not really threatened i mean there's potential and there's risk of course but if you do the risk reward calculation i think you're right no matter what the benefit to those people even five of them even a hundred of them is profound benefit guaranteed benefit Whereas there's a, just a theoretical mathematical risk to any of us, and certainly not any direct threat to to anybody. Um, you know, the worst case scenario would be pretty bad for those that would be affected. But there's there's not a high chance that something bad would happen to us. But there's a you know a hundred percent chance that these other individuals that are legitimately fleeing would be uh, benefited greatly. Yeah. So then it's just saying who's more important, me or or them, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the fact that France, from what I understand, uh, is still, um, they're still going to be accepting the refugees that they had agreed to accept is, I think that speaks volumes, you know, like that's not, you know, they're not doing that from a biblical, uh, you know, Christ-centered uh, 
viewpoint, I don't think. They're just doing it as a, hey, like, there are these people who are not far from our country that are like right here, mm-hmm. just really wanting to come in and survive. And even though there, even were though these, they just had an attack directly, yes, yeah. yeah. And they're saying, hey, even though there's these four people who did atrocious things, we can't leave these other people just out to dry. Yeah, you know, and. Yeah, I don't. So and, that and, makes that makes the us then, or or the thread of Americans that that don't that have an even more obstinate point of view seem start to seem really uh, jerky or xenophobic or I, racist, I, right? I mean, are you seeing the stuff? I guess what I'm saying is I intend to to agree with you on most of your impulses, and I also don't have very good information, but my impulses are along the lines of yours, but I'm trying to check myself, so I figured, man, maybe if I talk to somebody who knows somebody killed by the terrorists, then at least they could, they maybe they would have the opposite point of view than me, and I could like somebody that I trust or could learn from, but even hearing you say that, yeah, that sounds even more and more like still what I think, um, if that's not presumptuous. So then I'm thinking, so how do you then take the stuff that you inevitably must be seeing in your Facebook feed or the anti-Syrian or refugee or Muslim or the, you know, the, the stuff you may must see from the, uh, you know, maybe people you went to high school with and stuff like that. There's so much of the quote unquote national debate that goes on it, but it's just in internet comments mm-hmm. and it, you know, they, they'll call it a dialogue or whatever, but it's really just a lot of people yelling, uh, a viewpoint and just knowing a hundred percent that they're correct and everyone else well, is, is wrong. there a viewpoint Chris out, out of anybody's out there that that does irritate you or, or you don't get irritated that easily I know that so I'm kind of pressing for it but is there a point of view that does irritate you here um I I don't know like it's 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 hard because even the people that I, I would look at and say, man, I completely disagree with this guy. Like so many times, like Donald Trump, like, I mean, he, he's, he's like the like hot button, like, Hey, like, what do you think of Donald Trump? But like, there's a lot of times when he talks and I'm just like, man, like I would be so scared if this guy was in charge of our country, but even him, he'll say things. And I'm like, yeah, he's got a point there. Like, I think that I, I tend to look at everyone and say, okay, well, what is this person saying that I can agree with? And I just kind of tend to tune out the rest. Like, you know, I'll I'll straight up, like, listen to like conservative talk radio, even like if the guy is just spewing nonsense that I completely disagree with, just because I'm like, oh, he might have something that I can latch on to. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so I I don't know. Like I, I you know, when when I when I hear politicians just straight up saying, "Hey, we need to close the border 100%." Like I don't I don't agree with that, but I also recognize that they're not being I don't think they're not being like uh uh intentionally like uh, cold about it, mm-hmm. like they're, they're, what I mean, they're you're saying, saying they might even have a point. They might even be right, for all you know. I, I'm saying that there is, there's, there's, uh, they, they do do make valid points, yeah. And I also think that they are genuinely looking out for the best interests of our country and their viewpoint. 
Like, I, I completely get why someone would say, hey, we need to completely shut the border down. It's like, yeah, you're saying that because you want to make sure that nothing like that happens here. You're saying that because you want to make sure that we are all protected and we are all safe. Like, I don't think they're doing that saying like, yeah, like, you know, all the women and children that are trying to flee here, they can, they can go burn. I don't care. They're saying like, Hey, like, sorry, but we're trying to protect the people here. I don't agree with it, but I also get where they're coming from. Like mm-hmm. it's man, it's just a, it's a, uh, it's something that takes a lot of talking and a lot of working through and a lot of praying about and just freaking it might not be sortable chris i mean i've I've talked to four people now about this that i thought would have really good insight and i still feel relatively confused on the matter i you know i think some stuff's come a little bit become a little bit more clear in talking to Mm -hmm. people but how about this chris are you afraid will you be afraid playing shows going to europe doing your daily life with your family um I will not be afraid. I'll be aware. Um, like it's, you know, it's possible that something could happen, but at the end of the day, like I, I would not let anything that happens, like anything that a terrorist is doing change the way that I am choosing to live my life or my family live in their lives. Cause you know, it's, it's, it's super cliche, but it's like, once you start doing that, then that's the point that they're like, you know, they're, they're getting exactly what they want. Is that cliche? I mean, I think I was going to say, I was about to say, dude, you just stumbled onto something really cool there. Cause I think you're right. Maybe I'm cliche there, but yeah, that's what I'm thinking that I think that's the interesting question is, will we be afraid going forward and what will we do? And if so, is it, are they winning? Are they changing you know, our, our life, or do we have the ability to move forward and uh, do exactly what we're going to do otherwise? I actually, I got forwarded this email the other day, long story short, as I thought this email was coming from the, um, the, uh, the security department in our, in the company that I work for. Mm -hmm. Um, but it turns out it wasn't, but it was a forwarded email saying that, that, that all government, um, buildings were being, being put on alert because there was a large, there was like $30,000 worth of UPS uniforms that was bought illegally online. And they thought that, uh, terrorists, uh, had purchased these and they were going to be delivering packages to random places in the U S and to be on alert and all this stuff. And when I, when I got that email, like I, like, it was really crazy because I was like, oh, the UPS guy's coming here today, you know, and there was kind of a little bit of that feeling that I think we all got on mm-hmm. 9-11 where it's like, oh, wow, like we're not completely safe oh, here, you know, and and I had talked to my wife about it because there was like 20 minutes there where we thought this was like legit. It ended up not being legit, but um, it was for you at that, at that moment. Though. Yeah, it was. And we were talking and we were like, man, like you know, $30,000 worth of uniforms. You figure every uniforms probably costs about $8, (laughs) like, you know, doing the numbers. And we're just, and within that 20 minutes, we had already come to a, you know, like a, you know what, we're, we're going to live. We're going to raise our kids. Like, we're going to take care of us, you know, maybe go buy some bottled water just in case. But <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you know, whoever's behind that is, is really kind of despicable, too. I mean, that's just somebody probably whipping up a chain email to create some fear. And that's not yeah. even terrorists. That's just like American buttholes probably doing that. Yeah. That's, and turns that's out despicable. That, yeah. And turns out that email's been going around since like 99. Yeah. <laughs> 
that that is very funny. That is funny. Well, there's so you know? many things here we can't control, but you, but we can control what what we do. So I do think one of my my biggest takeaway must be that we still have a choice of how we behave for us, and uh, I think the right thing to do is is continue on just to continue on and choose not to alter most of the things that we do. Really, yeah, I think it, that's I think that's the biggest thing that we, that's really the only thing we can do because even information is super hard to come by in a reliable way. So the only choice we have is to change a bunch of stuff, and you'll be guessing. Is this better or worse? Is this the good thing to do, the bad thing to do? Or just determine, I have the power here to take care of people logically the way that I see fit, do everything I'm supposed to do humanitarian-wise, and you know I'm going to live my life and move move straight ahead. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to even overly worry, I guess, is, is, is probably a strong point of view, not a weak one in my opinion. Yeah, man. At the end of the day, it's like, you know, being you can get as educated as you want but you know i just want to make i i just want to make sure i'm raising my my kids to be uh to be awesome and to be able to uh you know love people the way that they need to mm-hmm. you know well that that comes through clearly and i think you're on the right track for that chris and i appreciate your thoughts on it. and also i'm really sorry to hear about nick oh well thanks man i, I appreciate it all right well that's all i've got chris i appreciate your time today all right, good deal, man. Well, thanks for the call, man. I All appreciate right. it. Okay. Thank you, Chris. That was Chris, that was my conversation for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I really did like this format. It's a bit more work, but it's real, real satisfying to me. I feel like I learned some stuff, and I really hope you did too. And if there's other stuff you'd like to hear me explore, other subjects, maybe not so much politics, but anything, anything else that that would work in this format, let me know. I really enjoyed it, and I got to say thank you. Just because I have an audience, I think I should be able to get. Just because of an audience like you, I can just maybe bring up people and talk to real interesting people that I can learn from. So thanks again. I'll I'll talk to you guys. I'll see you guys soon. Uh, hang on one second. Hold on. Hey, Georgia, tell them. See you later. See you later. Yeah. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.